Hello again. Last time I set the scene for our topic of the Wars of the Roses. But before I start to examine the causes of the wars, there is one more diversion I need to take. I have to explain a little about how government worked in the 15th century because a clear grasp of that is essential for understanding both how the Wars of the Roses came about and why they lasted so long. Let's start by stating the obvious. England, throughout the Middle Ages, was governed by a king. But monarchs were not then, as they are today, simply a figurehead for government. The king, anointed by God, actually had to rule. The role of king was essentially pretty simple. The king had to provide the focus of government. He had to set the agenda, if you like, formulating policy on such matters as making war and peace, raising taxation, passing laws and so on. But to carry out and enforce his decisions, the King of England needed help. He had no standing army and his resources were not much greater than those of his most powerful subjects. So the only way for a king to achieve his objectives was to harness the ambitions of his key nobles. For those were the men who possessed the power, wealth and resources to help him. Henry V did exactly that. He decided to pursue the war with France vigorously and his most powerful subjects, many of whom by the way had lands in France, backed him. Though these leading nobles or magnates each had enormous power in the far-flung regions of England, they also expected to be actively involved in the business of government. They would be members of the King's Council. They would provide armed retinues of men for war or to suppress rebellion, and they would direct opinion in Parliament. However, they did not take part in government out of some generosity of spirit. They expected to be rewarded, often with land, but also in other ways, such as promotion to higher office or by the right to collect some lucrative customs duties. Such rewards are called patronage and patronage lay at the heart of government and society in the 15th century. You supported your patron or lord, in this case the king, and he rewarded you. Now the modern student of history might see this as corruption, but as long as it was kept within bounds it was accepted at the time. And in case you're thinking that patronage was only an issue for a handful of men, remember that each nobleman sat at the apex of a social pyramid. When he was rewarded by the king, he passed on patronage to the lesser men who had supported him. It's worth considering then that if a nobleman was out of favour, the effects would be felt by many others who depended upon him at all levels of society. So, after that long and tedious lesson on patronage in the 15th century, what about the Wars of the Roses? What has patronage got to do with it? Surely weren't the Wars of the Roses all about rival claims to the throne? The Tudor chronicler Edward Hall tells us that the origin of this epic struggle began when Richard II was deposed by Henry IV of Lancaster in 1399. But was Edward Hall correct? 
Certainly Henry IV did depose Richard II and then usurped the throne. True, his actions were resented by several other fellow descendants of Edward III, but then Edward III had quite a lot of descendants. A major rebellion occurred early in Henry's reign and there were several later plots. But by 1422, when his son Henry V died, the House of Lancaster was firmly established. Having said that, you may recall that last time I mentioned that the warrior King Henry V died young in 1422 and left an heir, Henry VI, who was hardly nine months old. If ever there was a time when the House of Lancaster was at its weakest, that was it. That was surely the perfect moment for all those rival claims to be put forward. Yet, whatever claims other men might have had to the throne, such claims were not put forward. Throughout the long minority of Henry VI, when you would think that the child king was at his most vulnerable, there was no hint of any movement to depose him. He was accepted as the anointed king by just about everyone. So, whilst there were men who might expect to be the heir presumptive, the presumed successor, if Henry VI died childless, there was no suggestion that anyone should actually replace Henry. Nevertheless, logic suggests that this period, where there was no adult king at the helm, and the kingdom was in the hands of the most powerful nobles, must surely be where the origins of the Wars of the Roses lie. Given the very personal nature of royal government, clearly the child could not rule, and would spend the first fifteen or so years of his reign in the hands of the king's council. The agenda of government that I referred to earlier therefore had to be set by councillors, not the king. After all, the nobility could hardly sit around and say, well, this chap Henry's too young, there's nothing for it, we'll just have to wait until he grows up. Someone had to rule. One, or perhaps several, of the nobles would have to fill the dangerous power vacuum at the heart of the government. Some of these key nobles, who would normally expect to serve and support the king in ruling, would now have a different role to play. They were no longer the supporting caste. Taking a controlling influence in government meant you were raising yourself above your peers, and inevitably some of them were not too keen about it. Whichever of the nobility stepped up, they laid themselves open to charges of treason or corruption simply because they had to wield the power of a king to rule, yet they were not kings. If a king's policies were unpopular, he might be described as badly advised. But if a mighty noble ruling on behalf of a king was similarly unpopular, he was at best incompetent and at worst a villain. Thus, if you were a nobleman who took a leading role in government during the long minority of Henry VI, there had to be something in it for you. Lands, titles, advantageous marriages or inheritances, the usual patronage. After all, 
it was probably going to cost you a fortune from your own pocket. Both the risks and the rewards were great. Power might make you or utterly destroy you. The period of the king's minority, from 1422 to about 1437, was important because it raised some men far above others in influence and power. Not men chosen by a king, but men who could command a majority in the council. Was the royal minority a period of political chaos and noble infighting, which sent the kingdom spinning inevitably towards the Wars of the Roses? Well, no, it wasn't. Henry VI's minority was longer than any other in English history, yet, for the most part, the King's Council ruled effectively, and young Henry was fortunate to have two pretty capable uncles, the Dukes of Gloucester and Bedford, to run affairs at home and direct the war in France. Though the King's minority was not free from political rivalry or disagreement, that was perfectly normal. For the most part, there was political balance and consistent government. As a result, when in 1437 Henry VI came of age, England was a relatively peaceful, well-governed country. There were no embryonic squabbles poised to break forth and plunge the country into the Wars of the Roses. Sadly, it was when Henry's long minority ended that the real problems began. <laughs>